13, beginning in verse 1. Uh, this is the word of the Lord. It says, Now before the feast of the Passover, when Jesus knew that his hour had come to depart out of this world to the Father, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. During supper, when the devil had already put it into the heart of Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, to betray him, Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands, and that he had come from God and was going back to God, rose from supper. He laid aside his outer garments, and taking a towel, tied it around his waist. And he poured water into a basin and began to wash the disciples' feet, and to wipe them with the towel that was wrapped around him. He came to Simon Peter, who said to him, Lord, do you wash my feet? Jesus answered him, What I am doing you do not understand now, but afterward you will understand. Peter said to him, You shall never wash my feet. Jesus answered him, If I do not wash you, you have no share with me. Simon Peter said to him, Lord, not my feet only, but also my my hands and my head. And Jesus said to him, The one who is bathed does not need to wash, except for his feet, but but is completely clean. And you are clean, but not every one of you. For he knew who was to betray him. That was why he said, Not all of you are clean. And when he had washed their feet and put on his outer garments and resumed his place, he said to them, Do you understand what I have done to you? You call me teacher and Lord, and you are right, for so I am. If I then, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. For I have given you an example that you also should do just as as I have done to you. Let's pray quickly before we consider this. Lord, we uh, ask that you would take uh, what, for most of us, will be a familiar passage, and I pray that you would uh, apply it to our hearts in a new way. I pray that uh, your truth would shine forth, and that we would respond in faith to what is before us tonight. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Um, When Sarah and I moved to uh, Tulsa this summer, uh, the first few weeks, so I guess that has nothing to do with it, the first few weeks of school after we had moved, um, I was talking with a guy up here on campus. Uh, not a student, but a guy. Um, this wasn't the crazy teacher from last week. This is a different guy. And uh, he was telling me, he was kind of talking to me about um, his, his Christian journey. And he said uh, whenever he was a student, he came, he came to college, uh, wasn't a Christian, had grown up in the church, but really the gospel hadn't taken root in his heart, and he wasn't acting out and living in faith. But he said his freshman year, he, he began to. He heard the gospel. It became good news to him, and he responded in faith. And he said something that I thought was really interesting. He said that um, before, he, he kind of got a real heart for telling others what had happened to him and his testimony, his story. But he said, before he could go out and tell others, he said to me, he said, I, you know, I had to get clean. I had to get clean. And I don't know, it just set weird with me. I was like, what does that even mean? Because you've already said that you've been converted, but he said, I've got to get clean. And so just through the process of our conversation, and then thinking about it later, and now knowing a little bit more about this guy, I realized what he was saying. He was saying, I had to get my life all in order and all cleaned up before I could go out and tell people about Jesus. He wasn't referring to his kind of coming to faith moment, his first time believing in the gospel. He was talking about this later on thing. And friends, I want to suggest, and we'll talk about it tonight, that he has some categories mixed up. 
Because Jesus is talking to Peter, the rest of the disciples, but specifically Peter, about this cleanliness, about being washed, um, and all these things. And so we'll, we'll figure out why this guy was getting a little bit confused later on, but I want to kind of hold that out to you and put the question out there on the front end, are you clean, and do you still need to be cleaned? Have you been cleaned, and do you still need to be cleaned again, or washed, and continue to be washed? Do you need that still? I would suggest to you that um, there are ways that we can think about this in the passage. The first thing I want us to see is that Jesus finishes what he came to do. Okay, he finishes what he came to do, and we're going to see this from verse 2. Okay, and we're going to see that he came, uh, he finishes what he came to do in the midst of opposition. First, let's see it in verse 2. It says, During supper, when the devil had already put it into the heart of Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, to betray him, and he goes on, um, and also down in verse 10 and 11, he says, And you are clean, but not every one of you. And now he's talking to Simon, and he says, for he knew, Jesus knew, who, who was going to betray him, and that's why he said, not all of you are clean. Okay, there's kind of uh, a concept in here which is weird and it's hard to grab, but what Jesus is saying as he's sitting down at this meal with his disciples, is he says, look, um, there is one of you sitting around this table with the other 11 who are here. There's one of you, part of the 12, that is going to betray me. Now, for many of you who are familiar with Christianity, you're like, yeah, yeah, get on with it, it's Judas. Okay, but this is a big deal because what is, what's happening is Jesus is willing, knowing who is before him, knowing that there is one in this room who is going to betray him, Jesus is saying, look, in the face of hypocrisy and even one right here who is going to betray me, I'm going to continue to carry out this mission which God has given me. I'm going to carry it to its end. I'm going to finish that which is before me. You see, Judas was one of the disciples. He was one who had witnessed all the miracles of Jesus. Likely, he had done miracles himself. Jesus had given power to the disciples. They were doing miracles. Judas likely had done miracles. And this gets really kind of fuzzy in our minds because it's like, well, so was he a Christian and he wasn't a Christian? Or was he just not a Christian yet he could do all these things? What is it? I would actually, I would actually suggest that it is the latter. That Judas and his, uh, his heart will show it later, that though he was around Jesus, though he did many things for Jesus, for God, for the kingdom of God, doing great and marvelous acts, that his heart was actually never one that had been washed. He had never become converted. He had never fully placed his faith in Christ. And this is something that we have to take, you put together other pieces of Scripture in terms of how you make sense of this, because it just doesn't spell out a lot for us about Judas, except that, at the end of his life, he turned from Christ and went the other way. Okay? Now, there's a huge word that's just kind of looming here for us. Hypocrisy. Right? The idea of hypocrisy. How many times uh, have you ever... I'm going to ask you, actually raise your hand for this. Have you ever heard somebody say, I can't stand Christianity because of the hypocrisy? If you've ever heard that marginally or even to you, it's rampant, right? This is like one of the biggest um, reasons that people hate Christianity even or that they will never be Christians is that they look at the church, these people who are supposed to be Christians, and they see what they do, and they're like, whatever. Like, I'm, my non-Christian friends treat me better than those people treat themselves. Why would I ever want to join the church? Why would I ever want to become a Christian? Um, I have a friend who's a pastor down in Edmond. I was talking to him last night in Dallas. We were down there for a, a meeting, and he said... He's planning a church in Edmond, so he's just trying to meet people 
uh, all over the place. And one of the places he's meeting people is at a cigar bar in Edmond. I know that sounds weird, pastor doing that. But um, he said literally um, he goes there and they have uh, alcohol, I mean they have wine or, or beer, whatever you want, and people just sit around and smoke cigars and talk. And so he sat down with a group of three guys, uh, three men from a, a prominent business down in Oklahoma City, and he sat down with them, and after a few weeks, he had actually um, developed a friendship with them to where he wasn't just an outsider in their circle. But he sat down with them and said, kind of got into a lull in the conversation, he said, so what do you all think of Christianity? And one guy piped up and said, I effing hate Christians. <laughs> he was like, oh, okay. Uh, he said, Christianity is effed up. The pastor, his name's Pete, what he said next totally caught this guy off guard. He said, you know, I actually, I actually agree with you. He said, um, there are a lot, of, a lot of Christians who are, I don't know what he said, if he used the, uh, the pejorative word or not. But he agreed with the guy. And he said, amazing, and that opened just tons of conversation with this guy, as he acknowledged that the church, people who, came to be Christi- who claim to be Christians, can in fact do things and say things and act in ways um, that is unbecoming of the gospel. That is, it is not what Jesus has called us to do. And since then, interestingly enough, in the way this works, um, this guy has come to trust Pete. As Pete has said, um, he's talked to this guy about coming to his church, and he said, I could never um, don the doors of a church um, because I realized that there's a holy God in there. And Pete looked at him and said, well, that's exactly why you need to come to this church. Because he said, these aren't a group of people who are all together and all that. So what turned from this guy's number one objection to Christianity is now something that he has been welcomed in by as he realizes, look, this is the struggle of the church, is that within the church there are non-believers, but also, if you know your own hearts well, you know that within you, at times you do things, and I do things. I am currently, my wife and I are having a tough time right now. I have not treated her well in certain ways, and if some of y'all would get a glimpse into um, our, our marriage and some of the things I've done and said, you would think, and you're standing up here tonight and teaching us? Uh, it's true that my heart is still evil in many, sense, uh, in many ways, in, in every sense. Um, I still struggle, and you do too, right? You know that's the experience if you're a Christian in here. But we often wonder, why do I continue uh, in the ways, uh, in, in the sin, in these patterns that I do? Why can't I break free? Why don't I always treat Sarah perfectly? Why don't I always treat her even well? It's frustrating. It's extremely frustrating. And I think your experience as a Christian, if that, is, if that is your state tonight, is that's it. Is that it's frustrating that you keep doing the same things. I want you to look at verse 2, um, and hopefully we can figure out why some of this is. It says, During supper, when the devil had already put it into the heart of Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, to betray him. Um, yeah, yeah, Jesus knowing the Father, all that. But what I want you to focus on is when it says, The devil has already put it into the heart of Judas. The word there for put uh, in the Greek is like he cast. That the devil had already like cast a seed into Judas's heart. And now it is full grown. Now it has come to fruition. The, the seeds had been, had been spread on a heart that was evil, that was bent in evil. Um, his heart was never changed by Jesus. And so these seeds came to full fruition and even they led him to betray Jesus. And to deliver him over, as many of you would know, to later be crucified. You see, but our situations and our own sinful desires are much like that. That the devil may come and he may tempt us in certain ways, or he may even give us a little glimpse of sin, and we may indulge it for a time, and then kind of shut it off, 
and think, man, glad that didn't really get me. And then one day you're just kind of going along and boom, it just hits you. And you're overcome by this, this lust or this struggle or this uh, whatever it is. Whatever it is that just comes out of nowhere and you're like, where did that come from? I couldn't have seen that coming from 100 miles away. And it's hard, it's difficult. But I really do think it's because the devil will come and cast seeds on our hearts. In our hearts, which even for us Christians, still are fighting between sin and this new life that we have in Christ. That this, these seeds, if we don't put them to death, if we don't seek cleansing for even the small sins, if we leave them there on the soil of our hearts, they will grow up um, to full fruition and to great maturity um, in our hearts and they will wreak devastation in our lives. So we see that Jesus finishes um, what he came to start in the midst of this great opposition. And friends, I want you to know that that's true for your life too. That the, in the midst of the great opposition that your sin brings to the table, that Jesus comes and he's patient to, for, to go to the end. He's going to finish what he's begun, and we see that in this passage. The second we see that Je- Jesus finishes what he came to do, knowing what was before him. Knowing what before him. This is huge. Because in verse 3 and 4 it says, Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands, and that he had come from God and was going back to God, he rose from supper. And he laid, out, laid aside his outer garments and taking a towel, tied it around his waist. And as we know from the story, he would go on to wash his disciples' feet. But verse 3 says that knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands. Okay, this is what's happening. Jesus is toward the end of his life on earth. His ministry is almost done. He's about to be crucified, all these things, which was terrible in and of itself. But he knew that he was about to be with God again. That after his death and resurrection, he was going to be in perfect bliss forever. Now let me ask you this. If you know that like, the good life is about to happen, um, that uh, all of these privileges are about to come to you, or if you know that all these terrible things are about to happen, what is your mind consumed with? It's, if you're like me at all, it's myself. I've got to figure out if something terrible is coming, how do I ease the pain? How do I get out of this situation? How do I make my circumstances better now because I know it's about to be terrible? Or if I know that something wonderful is coming like Christmas break or something, I'm just kind of cruising on out. And I'm like, I just want to do the bare minimum to get by. Um, I don't want to do anything extra. I don't want to take on any extra projects. Some of you right now hope that your phone doesn't ring again for the rest of the semester. You just want to be done. Well, Jesus, uh, how unlike us, he, at this time, knowing that something terrible, and then, it, and then something glorious is going to happen when he is resurrected and is with the God the Father again, he says, now I'm going to show you the full extent of my love. And he goes and he serves his disciples. He serves them. He takes on this great humility, this great posture of a servant, and he washes their feet. Uh, <clears throat> J.C. Ryle, who I've talked about a lot this semester, he's really good in, this, uh, in the Gospel of John, he says that he knew that they, all of his best friends, that all these people sitting with him, uh, like cowards, would forsake him. They were about to forsake him. When Jesus was going to his death, his friends, his best friends, were nowhere to be found. They peaced out like, I mean, they were nowhere, nowhere at all. And he says, but that did not keep him from loving them with all of their weaknesses to the very end. And of course, as we see, the fullest extent uh, of Jesus' love was on full display as he served them. Now, um, again, I just want you to consider how different this is and what 
a man Jesus is, that that is his character. That is his nature, that he came, and we talked about last week some, he came and was serving to the very end. Everything he did was for others, and he shows us that again tonight. That even with the prospect of his own death and the fact that his best friends were about to hand him over and desert him, he still longs to serve them. And that is crazy for us because we're just not that way. We're just not that way. Uh, Secondly, kind of overall, the second thing I want us to see is that Jesus came to wash dirty people. And part of what this means is that he came to wash dirty people once and for all, and he also came with an ongoing washing of dirty people. Okay, so there is these kind of two different ideas, that he comes to wash people who are sinful and dirty and messed up once and for all, but then he continues to wash them. So the once and for all idea, this is what I mean. Um, In theological circles, kind of there's this big word out there, some of you may know it, it's called justification. Okay, if you think of justification, this is simply what it means. It is that you are declared right or perfect before God the Father, before God of the whole world, that you're declared righteous. Okay, you're justified, you're fully acquitted, your sin, your debt has been paid for. Okay, justification. That is a one-time washing. When you believe the gospel... When the truth of what Jesus has done for sinners and broken people becomes real to you and your sins are forgiven, you are justified. Once, it doesn't happen many times, it happens one time. You're washed. And we see this in verses 6 through 8. He says, he came to Simon Peter, who said to him, Lord, do you wash my feet? Simon couldn't believe that Jesus was about to do, that he was taking on such humility as to wash their feet. Simon, or Peter, Simon Peter, he doesn't quite get what's going on. That's pretty evident. He says, Lord, do you wash my feet? And Jesus answered him, he said, what I'm doing you do not understand now, but afterward you will understand. And Peter said to him, you shall never wash my feet. And Jesus answered him, if I do not wash you, you have no share with me. Okay, this is what Jesus means by that statement, because it's about to get confusing, because then Peter goes back to him and said, no, but not me, not just my feet, my whole body. Okay, but Jesus says, if I do not wash you, you have no share with me. This is the justification. If you are never justified, if you never put your faith in Christ, in who you are as a sinner, as one who um, has broken even one of the Ten Commandments or any other thing, if you are a sinner before God, you have to be washed by Jesus' blood. You have to be cleansed by that. And this is what Jesus is foreshadowing whenever he talks about this and using this language. And he's saying, if that's never happened to you, um, you have no part in me. You have no place in me. Okay. Um, ultimately, if you are ever someone who would um, follow, follow Jesus or be justified, you have to realize that you can't impress God enough. Your good works, your community service hours, your resume, all of these things that you do for God or for your parents or for their approval or for whatever, they will never be enough to be justified. The, what counts as your justification, your right standing before God, is that you have been washed. You have been washed by Jesus' blood. We sing a lot of songs here at RUF. It hit me in about early on, like the third or fourth week, um, and I don't know if you catch it, that talk about blood. <laughs> like, if you're not a Christian and you come in, you're just thinking, like, why the bloodiness? Like, this is like war up here on the screen every week. Why do we do that? Why is the blood a big deal for Christians? Because it's our washing. That the Old Testament talked about 
David, um, the great King David, after he had committed his sin with Bathsheba, he, he slept with Bathsheba. He then had her husband killed so that no one would find out that she was pregnant with his child. Terrible thing. Terrible thing. Also, the man who's called, uh, he was after God's own heart. So that tells us a little something about the, um, our standing as Christians and what it means to struggle with sin. But David prayed after that, after that terrible sin incident. He prayed, Lord, wash me white, make my sins, wash me with hyssop, make my sins whiter than snow. And we come into the New Testament, and the language is, is that Jesus' blood, something that's not white, but is red, obviously, um, as it fell from the cross, as he shed his blood, that that blood now is what makes our sin whiter than snow. That though our sin be like blackness, it is now whiter than snow because we have been washed through what Jesus has done. And friends, that points us forward to this idea of Jesus and his bride. Because what color is the dress that a bride wears? It's white. It's the image of spotlessness, of radiance, of beauty, of, 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 of perfection even, in a, in a lesser way on earth. Um, but that we are not stained, we are not tarnished, but it's pure. And that's what Jesus' blood does. And that's why if you're ever to call yourself a follower of Jesus, you must be washed. You must have that justification, that one-time washing, or you will have no share in Jesus. So have you ever had that? Have you ever been cleansed by that blood? Do you know Jesus in that way? Has He cleansed your sin? Not just sin in the big, kind of esoterical um, sense. Has He cleansed your sin? Are you counted whiter than snow? Will you be one of those who, at the end of time, is dressed in white and is welcomed as his bride? Is that you? But Jesus didn't only come to wash dirty people once and for all. We see in this passage, Jesus continues, continues to wash the feet of dirty people. There's an ongoing aspect to this washing which takes place. We'll see it in verses 9 and 10. Simon Peter said to him, Lord, not my feet also. He's getting... After Jesus just said, if I don't wash you, you have no share with me. Simon Peter now says, okay, I get it. Then don't just wash my feet. Wash all of me. My hands and my head. Jesus said to him, the one who is bathed does not need to wash. Except for his feet. But is completely clean. And you are clean, Simon. But not every one of you. Okay, now this gets weird if what we have just said is not true. Because what we've said is that you need the one-time washing. And Jesus in this passage calls it the bathing. He says the one who is not bathed, uh, the one who has bathed, does not need to be washed wholly again, completely again. They just need this ongoing sense. Okay, now this is what this means because it gets, uh, could get really confusing quickly. Peter doesn't get what's going on, and that's okay. Um, but it was well known in that day, okay, kind of take your mind back to first century when things are a little dirtier than they are today, right? When you walked around with sandals, maybe. Uh, a lot of just kind of nasty feet stuff going on, okay? I actually, flip-flops, I just can't wear them like I used to. <laughs> um, I, th- I don't know what it is. It's just kind of looking down and seeing feet all over the place. I used, that's all I used to wear. Um, but I just have this problem in looking down in like, I know many of you have flip-flops on, so you're all self-conscious, whatever. Sorry, guys, I hope it offends you because it's nasty. Girls, sorry. Because um, your feet aren't as nasty as guys. But... Um, in the first century, this, is, this would have been the norm, except like you didn't walk on concrete in between your classes, in between your car, 
It was nasty. It was gross, like gross, smelly, buildup. And so what's happening is that Jesus is coming, and in, in the culture in the day was that if you washed someone's feet, if you went to someone's house, it would be customary for a servant of that house just to wash your feet. And it represented you being clean. You didn't need to take a whole shower again because really it was just your feet that were dirty. And so when your feet were washed, you were considered clean. You were welcomed in as a guest. Okay, and so that's what Jesus is getting at. He's saying that you don't need your whole body to be cleaned again, Peter. You don't need um, to be completely washed again because you've already had that one-time washing. You are considered clean. What you need is just to be cleansed the day to, from the day-to-day sin that, t- that plagues. You need this ongoing life of, of confession before God, of saying, Lord, I've done it today. Renew me again today. I believe, I know that I've been cleansed, and that, I, and that I stand right before you because of what Jesus has done, but I've sinned in this way today. I've looked at this again. I've uh, given my heart out to this guy. Or I've longed for the approval of that girl or that group or for that professor, or of my parents. And I failed to believe the gospel today. Please come, cleanse me again, wipe me clean. And friends, that's one of the great comforts in Christianity. And it's one of the great comforts that um, we can make sense of the fact that I, have, I don't need to be saved again, although you may have felt that way, and many of you have done that, tried to be saved again. You need, when you feel the guilt of your sin, all you do is you turn to Jesus and say, come and give me the daily cleansing. Cleanse me, cleanse my heart again from this ongoing sin that I have. Make me new again. And that is the ongoing picture we see here, and that's what he's telling Peter. It's why in the Lord's Prayer, Jesus says, Forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. Forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. He's saying this is, and he told them to pray this daily. So how would that make sense if when you ask the Lord for forgiveness, if that's just the justification thing. No, it's the ongoing process of the Christian life that we're always praying and asking God, help me today. I'm struggling today. I'm sinning in this way. Help me. And it's that constant dependence on Jesus and His blood. The fact that that blood still cleanses. The same blood that cleanses sin continues to cleanse us now. Okay. But here's how this plays out in our lives is that we still say yes to things that we shouldn't say yes to. We still give sin tacit uh, approval in our life. We still let it come in and do it. We still date people that we shouldn't um, because we know that the relationship isn't healthy. We still do things with those people physically because um, we long to and we think it's going to make us feel significant and give us worth, but we know we shouldn't. Okay, we still sin. You still run to lesser things. You run to busyness. Some of you uh, girls in particular run to shopping to kind of get out of uh, the loneliness that you feel that at time is palatable. You run to all sorts of things. And guys, you you run to video games and all this stuff because you simply don't want to deal with the fact that you have stuff in your life that you don't want to own up to or confess with. You don't want to sit still with. And so you run. But what Jesus says is that, look, the way forward in the Christian life is that you have to confess these things. You have to look back at Jesus' blood and say, I need that continual washing. I need to be sanctified is the the big word for it. I need to be set apart again and again. Continue to work this in me. Your whole body doesn't need to be clean again. If you're in Christ, if you've been washed, you need the ongoing. He's saying that dependence on him 
uh, for continual washing, what it does is that where those seeds have been sown in our heart, where, where Satan and the evil one has cast those seeds of sin and doubt in our heart, that the continual washing is like a bleach that comes in and kills it. It kills the grass that started to sprout. My wife and I, when we lived in Charlotte, um, we bought this house and it had an unbelievable yard. It was beautiful. Beautiful fescue yard. So it was green year-round, got a little bit dark and um, a little bit brown in July, but beautiful yard. Um, I didn't know what to do with this. I just didn't want to kill it as all I knew. So I had to study up on it. And what I found is that um, with grass seed, with fescue grass seed, you had to throw it out. Um, you, you poked holes in the yard. You, uh, it's called aerated the yard. And you put out this grass seed. And you watered it a little bit for 14 days. 14 days. And for 14 days, you didn't see anything. All you would see is your grass seed just laying on dirt. And it's like, well... That's kind of depressing um, because I'm giving it a lot of care and a lot of attention and nothing's happening. But had I not read the books, I would have been depressed. But what happened is on the 15th day, um, these little green like hairs, you know, grass things, they start poking up out of the seed. Like clockwork. It was amazing. And I just continue to be, uh, and, uh, I continue to be amazed at what God does in creation, that flowers grow and grass grows like, like the book says it should. Um, I wonder if God had the books. Anyway, um, <clears throat> uh, but look, that seed is like sin in our heart. The evil will come and do that in our heart, like I mentioned earlier. But the washing, the continually going to Jesus, saying, forgive me again, is what kills that seed before it gets going. You see, if I were to fertilize in that 14 days with the wrong fertilizer, it would kill it. And the same thing in your heart, in your life. If you are to be in the wrong situations that you know will provoke, will provoke and provide opportunity for sin, you guys know what those situations are. It's going to be like the right fertilizer that just causes it to sprout up. But friends, when, co- when you come to Christ and you remember the washing is an ongoing thing, it is like the cleansing that you need, and it takes the seed from you, and it gives you a new start. It brings new life where death will otherwise flourish. Okay? And this all leads to this right here. <clears throat> is that at the end of the passage, Jesus calls us to follow his example. He calls us to follow his example. Now we have to think about this as we put this together. Because that guy at the beginning of the story uh, that I talked about earlier, he said he needed to be clean. What he, where he messed up is that he already was clean. He didn't need <clears throat> to get everything perfect in his life before he could do anything for God. And so you too, you don't have to get everything straightened up. What you need, the process of being cleaned as a Christian, is that you continue to go to Jesus and say, I need you, I need your help. And that's when you go minister to people, right in the midst of all of it. If I had to come to you every week and I couldn't talk to you about the gospel and I couldn't open the Bible and talk to you unless I was thoroughly clean in and out, then friends, I better find another job. (laughs) I would be out of work quick if you all knew what was in my heart. So it is with you. The Christian life is realizing that we live amidst sin in our own heart. That you don't have to be completely clean before you minister to others. It's part of it. But we are called to put it to death and invite the ongoing cleansing. But Jesus calls us to follow him as he serves people. So how do we serve people amidst sin? How do we do that? Let's read verses 12 through 15 and we'll look at uh, real quickly. And this is the last thing that we're looking at. It says, when he had washed their feet and put out his, on his outer garments and resumed his place, he said to them, do you understand what I have done to you? You call me teacher and Lord, and you are right, 
Uh, for so I am. If I then, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. For I have given you an example that you also, also should do as I have done to you. Um, what we hear in this uh, is just Jesus saying, I did this, be like me, go do it. And y'all, there's a real sense, and that's what's happening. There are some passages of Scripture where Jesus says, look, this is an example that people who follow me will do this very thing. And so, um, as we think about doing um, Habitat this Saturday, and as many of you serve in countless ways already, um, I want this to kind of springboard us in, that as we go to serve this family that we're um, helping move into a home or um, whatever stage we're catching around the project, I'm not sure, um, as we go to serve them this way, let's realize that Jesus has called Christians to do this. He does. He calls us to be like him in this way. Amidst our, the muck and nastiness in our own heart, we're called to serve people. Okay, but catch this, is that your friends who aren't Christians do this too, right? And so this is a thing that the world embraces, and it's called common grace. That Jesus doesn't, that Christians aren't the only people who serve others, and that's a great thing. It really is. There's so many non-Christians who do way more than we do as Christians. That's the truth. It is just the truth. And so we're to turn around and thank God for that and say, thank you that for some reason or another these people want to go serve you. And they want to do these things for others. Um, But Christians in particular are called to serve. And as a watching world looks at the church, and amidst hypocrisy and everything else, Jesus wants them to see that we are people who lay down our lives for others. That we are people who serve, who do as Jesus did, and we give of ourselves. Um, It's tricky, because in verse 14, as often we think about serving people, we're like, oh, I can easily go do something for people who are less fortunate than me who I can kind of condescend to their level and do this. And that's very much a picture of the gospel. It is. Jesus condescended to us. But it says in verse 14, you must wash one another's feet. Wash one another's feet. The Lord here requires us to serve the people right around you, your peers, your roommates, the people on your hall who you don't like, who are the same age as you and the same class as you and all these things. Wash one another's feet. Friends, if the outside world is ever to see Christians as anything other than hip, uh, hypocritical and all these things, I would think that leading them by serving them uh, might be a way that they might see something else, um, a different message than one of hypocrisy. So here are two things to think about, and we'll close with this. I'm just going to close with these questions. How do we keep our service to God in the, in the image of Jesus and in, in his model? How do we keep these things from just being routine? How do we keep them from just being routine? I suggest we look back at the gospel. You can think about that as it plays out. Um, how, do we, how do we think about our own hearts sometimes when we go to um, serve people and we know that we're going for poor reasons, that we're going just to fill our slot from PLS hours or from presidential leadership or whatever it may be, um, or just to fill your resume? How do you come and take those motives which are mixed at any given time and say, Lord, I want to just, I want to serve you and I know that I may get some extra benefit for it, but I want to do that? Friends, I would, I would, I would say that it's also in this passage that it's going to Jesus and saying, look, here's my sinful motive today. Here it is. Come and cleanse this too. This needs to be washed. I know that you love me. I know that I've been justified. But I even need help when I go to serve people because I don't do it out of a heart um, of love and of service like Jesus did.
And so we're constantly being called back to the gospel to trust what Jesus has done for us and to that, let that be the fuel that takes you in to serve this world. Let's pray. Father, I pray that you would um, take this uh, message, that you would let it sink deep into our hearts, Lord, that we might be a people who love to serve others, um, and that you might, along the way, purify our motives, that we might do it simply to love them and to serve them, and also to show forth the gospel, to show forth that Jesus did not consider equality with you something to be grasped, but he lowered himself and became like us struggling in every way as we do. Father, please let this sink deep down, that we might run to you um, and we might serve you. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Go ahead and uh, come on up and we'll sing one more song.